Today we have an opportunity to really finish up the meat of 1 Peter, and to that extent we're going to be doing some review. We still have a few verses where we are looking at some other relationships. Remember that is one of the themes there of Peter, and so we're going to be finishing up in the relational category the last few verses, uh, and that'll be next week. Um, we're really coming to a, a concept that is helpful to review and to really establish the principles of First Peter and recognize their purpose. And so as we come into this, uh, we're really still in this passage of First Peter 5 that we picked up in verse 6 and we now move into verse 10 and 11. I did skip one phrase, and I told you we'd be coming back to it um, after we had studied the four things that God's grace will do for you after you have suffered a little while. And that phrase in verse 10 is, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We're going to be talking about this calling and the purpose thereby, and then also linking it to verse 11, uh, which has a similar themes. It says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have for the past two weeks looked at the promises of God in response to our faithfulness in the midst of suffering. That as we uh, stand fast and engage in this defending of the faith against the wiles of the devil, the evil one, that as we defend ourselves and our position of obedience, of righteousness, even as Satan and the world, our own flesh sometimes opposes us, that faithfulness and the suffering entailed with that um, is noticed by God. And God says, once you have endured that for a little while, and that while we talked about is varied, depending upon your circumstances, that we have this expectation. The expectation is to be restored, even in this world, to ministry to a walk with God that is uh, productive. And while we might look at this time of defending the faith as being unproductive, it really isn't, for it is, it is building and establishing not only our faith, but our character and our walk with God. It is deepening our walk with God. It is fine-tuning the character of Christ in us so that we are um, hopefully a brighter light in a darker place. Uh, that we, instead of diminishing as a light, we are actually getting brighter and brighter. And that's a rarity, unfortunately. It, it wasn't always a rarity. And that is why when we go through church history and we look at the revivals uh, and the period of revival, well, what preceded those was often very dark periods where believers were hunted down. Uh, their believers were, had strong opposition around, but they held fast. They were, they were willing to suffer, even death. They, were to do, they did it joyfully, without complaint against God, without questioning God's purposes, without ever that declaration, why me? They knew why them. Uh, it's kind of silly that we ask that question, why me? Uh, well, we should know the answer to that, right? It's because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why you. And the more faithfully you follow after Christ, the more you should anticipate that kind of uh, opposition. And so we come to this passage and we anticipate that once we endure that, that we are not 
and we, we call that less productive, but, it, but it, uh, only from a human perspective, I think from God's perspective, that is a very productive time in terms of, of perfecting our salvation, of working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, of, of completing that work that Christ has begun in us. That then we will be put into a very productive period. And again, by productivity, uh, we're talking about ministering the word of God to people, whether it be God's people uh, in obedience, God's people in disobedience, or the lost. And not selecting one of those, but recognizing our ministries to all of those. And productivity does not mean that we're going to see great multitudes of people coming to repentance, but rather that the word of God will go forth clearly with power and authority and bring uh, men to a knowledge of Christ. Whether that knowledge is responded to by faith that leads to salvation, by godly sorrow leading to repentance, is really uh, beyond our responsibilities that we've been studying on Sunday night. That, that entails the work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of God himself, but also the response of the individual to the information they've been given. And so when we look at opportunities of ministry suddenly blossoming before us in answer to prayer, uh, we find that that has been the precursor and really the moving of the church into a period of of, uh, spectacular growth. And we see it in the book of Acts. And so if we see it in the early church, we see that how did the church expand beyond Jerusalem? Well, it was in response to persecution of Saul of Tarsus. And then they went everywhere preaching the gospel. In the midst of persecution, they became faithful. They persisted in their faith. They never questioned it. You don't find them running away saying, oh, why have I followed after this guy Jesus? What a big mistake that was. Oh, not at all. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. Uh, They are more committed to it than ever. And then we say, well, what was the result of that? Well, well, you go up to Antioch and you see the result of that when you get to Revelate, or, or to Acts uh, 14 and you know, 13 and, and the whole uh, selection of Paul and Barnabas and sending them out as missionaries with a plan and purpose of reaching the Roman Empire with the gospel. And suddenly ministry just explodes through that. So was the persecution and the Christian's response productive? Yes, from a negative view. (laughs) The gospel still went out, but that's not the preferred mechanism. But they endured that, and they built a character and a quality about themselves. And and God's grace was extended to them in response to them suffering for a little while. And then we see this great, planned, purposeful ministry uh, being uh, largely focused in in the book of Acts, at least on Paul, but we see it among many others, as even Paul and Barnabas, when they split, each started their own campaigns, if you will, Paul adding Silas, Barnabas, John, Mark, and so you see that this multiplication of ministry throughout the empire of Rome. Similarly in our day, we need to be anticipating that, and so we do not shy away from, unless we are just soft and selfish and of little faith, shy away from suffering, but we are willing to stand our ground, nor do we come into it and then challenge and question God's purposes 
as though he is not loving and gracious and good to us. That is no different than the immature child who questions the goodness of a parent that disciplines them, a parent that stops them from, by grabbing them abruptly and harshly to keep them from running out to traffic. Um, it is no different than that. And so let us be mature in our faith and recognize that such suffering is for our benefit and is to be embraced and thank the Lord for it. As the apostles did in Acts, they went out with great joy that they were counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake. So all of that is entailed there. We've looked at that for the last two weeks. Now we want to really drive home the eternal aspect of this. We really talk about we want to have developed and, and deeper ministry, more substantial ministry on the other side of that suffering. But there is also a far future, maybe not so far, future aspect of the grace of God. And Peter has given that to us in this phrase that he has called you, that is, he has called you not only to salvation, but called you to ministry is really what this passage is about, and called you in, into his kingdom to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And we find our purpose, that while our purpose is, is to certainly minister the grace of God and to help one another, to strengthen one another, to stand fast, while there's certainly a concern for the lost that are out there and their need for a Savior, because we don't want to see them in eternal damnation, that we certainly have each other and those people's benefits and in mind that still is not the ultimate purpose for which we have relationships for which we have ministry, and for which we have good doctrine. Those three major themes we've been looking at in Peter. And so, what is the ultimate purpose? Well, the ultimate purpose of man in all things from creation was to bring glory to our Creator. And every time we fail to do that, we injure the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. That is your designed purpose from creation. Before there was ever sin, um, God didn't create you because he needed, because um, he was lonely and needed someone to mess around with, talk with. And, um, because, he, no, he did that for his glory, that as we walk in obedience, he receives the glory, honor uh, from that. And so as we choose to walk in obedience by that uh, free will that he gives you to do that, you choose whether you're going to obey or disobey. Every time you obey, you bring me glory. You disobey that sin, it'll bring you death. And that is just the reality of the outworking of uh, the world that he placed us in to allow us extra privilege so that we could bring him greater glory. Once we come into a relationship with Christ, that privilege is multiplied, correct? We are no longer just his created beings. We are now within his very family. He has brought us in as sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. We are not begotten of God, but we are adopted into the family of God. That is a tremendously privileged position. And while we are the benefactors of that, we know ultimately that the real glory, the real applause for this isn't for us. 
because we were not deserving of that position. We were not deserving of that exaltation. Indeed, uh, even after suffering a little while in these four words, we say the last two weeks, we're not really worthy of those either. And we hopefully recognize that if we have really understood the, what humility entails. Then we recognize I have a wonderfully privileged position as being a child of God. Now, many times when I hear Christians talk about, well, I'm a child of God, we usually talk about all that that entails for us. Well, I get to call uh, my father by um, Big Daddy in the Sky or something like that. And I, somewhere I read something this week, too, about it was just a derogatory, not a derogatory, but a way too familiar term used to refer to our Heavenly Father. Well, I'm his child, I get to call him that. Um, no, <laughs> not if you understand the privileged position of that. And others that, well, we're children of God, we're, we're princes and princesses, and, and we, and we uh, want to strut around like that. And again, if you understood the fact that you are in that privileged position, not because you are worthy of it, but entirely unworthy of it, then you want to bring all the glory to God, you will never carry that attitude about yourself. You do not find it in the writers of the scripture. Why? I am an unprofitable servant, Jesus tells his disciples. That's your response when you've done everything God has commanded. He says, I'm an unprofitable servant. I have only done what is my duty to do. That is our attitude. That's what our attitude should carry. Because we recognize that truly we are adding nothing to God. We are we are not there to benefit. He's not benefited by having us in his family. We are the benefactors of his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his love, and we have extraordinary privilege as his children. Agreed. We have that privilege. But what do you do with that privilege? Do you strut it around, lord it over one another? Do you lord it over the lost who do not share that privilege? No. Because we recognize that it's really not something I attained. But in these days, and the reason I think this is so infected in the church, in these days, people are walking around proud of something they had no control over. Do you notice that? We're not proud of accomplishments. We aren't, we aren't, we aren't going around uh, looking at things I have built, things I have accomplished. Rather, um, we walk around with our chests out and, and strutting about like peacocks because um, of my things I have no control over. You had no control over who you were born, right? Do you have any control of your skin color? Of who your parentage was? No. Of what your nationality was? You had no control over that. I know you can expatriate yourself and go be somewhere else, but essentially the culture you're, you're born into is the culture you're born into. You didn't choose that. You had nothing to do with it. And yet, we in our society say, well, I'm proud to be this. I'm proud, you know, oh, it's, oh, it's February. It's Black History Month. Oh, I have to have, be proud in my blackness or Caucasianness or brownness. I don't know. You have brown history night, week, month, year. Um, why are you proud? You had nothing to do with it. There's no accomplishment there. And so we have been ingraining people to be proud of your, you know, being a woman, being a man. Um, well, you're not allowed to be proud of being a man anymore. 
So, being a woman, so it's always a minority. And so, um, oh, you be, well, you had no decisions. I know we think we do, and that's what we have been, because that's what we glory in, is things we had no choice over. We try to invoke our choice on these things when they are just the way we are. This is who you are. This is what you were born into. You had nothing to do with it. And because we are defining ourselves by these things, which don't really define you, you had no control over, you want to have something to boast in, as Paul says, um, boast in this, that you serve the living God, of the choices that you've made, the accomplishments that you're having in your life. And being a Dutch man is no accomplishment for me. I was, I was a Dutch male when I was born. I hadn't done anything. Why be proud about that? In America, so I'm American. I'm Dutch-born, uh, Dutch male American. So, oh, yes, that's what I'm proud of. You know, on my tombstone said he was a good Dutch-born American. Dutch male American. No, it accomplished nothing. It's just what I was born into. But because society has glorified that, we somehow come to the idea of sonship in Christ. And again, that's something I take pride in. Well, you didn't accomplish your sonship in Christ, did you? Jesus Christ accomplished that for you on the cross, in the empty tomb, and in his power, presence and power at the throne of God. It was done for you. Hence the word grace is magnified in this passage. That this is God's favor placed upon you. And we are guilty of this historically as well. Um, we even look at, at Mary, the mother of our Lord. And, and again, what is the statement the angel says? You are a highly favored one. Well, that doesn't mean she earned it or deserved it. Uh, God, gr grace was extended to a highly graced one. I'm gonna, you're going to be granted something you don't deserve is the very definition of the word. And yet we want to extol her as somehow a better maiden than any other maiden in Israel of those days. And even to the point of saying, well, she was immaculately conceived. Um, and no, she was nothing other than a highly graced young lady of the tribe of Judah. Among many available. And so we all the glory should be going to God. Instead, we want to glorify the creature instead of the creator. And so we come to this concept of our calling to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. The mechanism of how we can serve him is the work of Christ Jesus. So we can't take credit for that. And this is borne out in other passages. By grace you have been saved through faith. And don't think that faith is some great Thing you added to salvation, right? And I'm not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, I don't boast in my salvation in terms of I accomplished it. Well, I did these things, and I did these things, and I hear some people, well, I got, and they, they boast in the preacher or the baptizer or things like that. I'm like, no, all the glory belongs to in terms of the mechanization, how your 
salvation was accomplished in your life all goes to Jesus Christ. He did all the work. Accepting a gift is not labor. It is not glory. All right? Uh, if, if a person goes out, pays for that, wraps that, engages that, and then brings it to you, offers it to you, no one's going to say, oh, you're just a wonderful person because you accepted that gift. That was just a tremendous act on your part of accepting his expensive gift. No one goes around applauding people for accepting gifts and say, oh, that must have been so hard for you. Right? No, we don't. We say, oh, you, you're a great benefactor. And we, the glory goes to the person who bought and paid for and wrapped and presented this gift and made it yours. And this is entailed here that we are called for the glory of the working of Jesus Christ. Now, um, again, we come to that whole idea of what are we called to? And, and our, is this referring to we are called eternally, I'm sorry, to the eternal glory? Does that mean that we are called in eternity past uh, before we were ever born or thought of that uh, God chose us? No, this isn't a choosing. This is an invitation. He has invited us uh, to participate in his grace that is accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ, again, to his eternal glory. That we can glorify him historically, we can glorify him presently, and we'll glorify him in the future, which is what we're going to be focusing on the balance of our time. That we are here to bring him's glory. Now, as benefactors... We have received a wonderful gift. But we do not parade it around as if it is of our own making. The fact that I am a Dutch male American is not of my own design. If anything, it goes to my parents who decide to have a kid. And the grandparent, whoever came from Holland and moved over here, they would be more to get credit for me being American than me. And so we don't take glory in these things, but yet we find many that do, that strut about as though they've done something to accomplish their salvation, or that God saw something in them that he didn't see in those people who are heading to the, on the wide road to destruction, that God saw something special in them that wasn't there, and that's why God saved you. No, this is all upside down. Now you are, again, tarnishing the glory that belongs to God and putting it upon yourself. And again, if we have learned the humility through suffering in as we stand, we will never go that way. We will truly bring the glory to the God, not only for this season, but eternally. Forever and ever, he will receive the glory. When we are allowed to be brought into his presence in our eternal home, uh, we are not going to be applauding, oh boy, he got lots of crowns. Wow, he must have been something good. No, that's not going to be the scene, is it? Because all of us, when we receive those, uh, when God acknowledges these ministries, and it might be rarer than we think that there are crowns handed out, uh, we think there's going to be this everybody gets a trophy attitude <laughs> we've been inundated by our generation. Uh, there are no participation crowns, by the way. So if you're hoping for one of those, you're going to be sadly 
disappointed. Uh, but we get in there and we say, well, all those crowns are for those people's glory because you put a crown on their head. No, we find immediate response. The immediate response is that we cast those crowns before him and say, it is you who receives the glory, honor, and praise. These are simply the tool that I have now to bring you glory forever and ever, and we'll just continually be doing that. Continually bringing him the glory, the praise, the honor. And we already have some individuals there who have been doing that for many thousands of years who are, who are our examples of how to do that. The 24 elders, it says in Revelation, the 24 elders, um, uh, we don't know the frequency, how often they do this, but apparently, well, let's go there. You guys might not know what I'm talking about. Revelation. We're in chapter 4, and... And we can go into chapter 5 as well, but uh, in the description of, of all that was in heaven, uh, the place in chapter 4 uh, that he arrives, he describes it for us, and we come into the song of the four living creatures. They're described for us in verses 7. Their song is in verse 8. And then in verse 9, we want to pick up. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. Does it sound familiar? Kind of like what Peter, we just heard read in Peter, right? The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who's, who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you create all things and by your will they exist and were created. So the 24 elders are already our example and, and what, whoever, whatever they are, we can, we're not going to get into that rabbit hole, um, but we find them. Whenever this song is done, the amen of that song is that they're going to cast their crowns Cells before and they're going to worship him and they're going to say you are worthy to receive the glory honor and power i haven't done anything and again the focus is all on the created order uh, whereas later on it's going to be upon the work of jesus christ if you want to know what how it's going to sound when we cast our crowns it's going to sound different we have a different song than this one our song with casting our and crowns are simply authorities that we have granted certain authorities or certain uh, aspects of that and so they're going to, every time, we don't know how frequently the song is sung, but every time it ends, those guys are going to be, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. I'm going to bow before you, I'm going to cast this out, and this is the tool that I'm going to use to glorify you. And so we end very much where it all began, in, in the Garden of Eden, that very special thing that God gave us, his image, we are image bearers, and the authority to have dominion over the earth was the mechanism by which we are to give glory to God in a perfect condition. So Adam and Eve used their will, a free will, to bring glory to God with every decision they made of obedience. That brought God's glory. That was how they were to glorify God. By not eating that, by naming animals, by tending and keeping the garden, by doing whatever God required, um, they, by their choosing to obey, brought glory to God. On a daily, regular basis. And now we come into heaven's glory and we find that here, I, I go back to my original condition where I choose to always glorify God with the tool that he has given to me. And since I've already surrendered my will to his will, 
in salvation. At this point, I'm surrendering all that I have, and that which I have is that which he has granted to me. Where did the crown come from? It was not of your own design. It was not of your own making. It is, again, a originated in our Lord and Savior. It originates from God. God grants this to you, this authority. Even the authority to make a decision. Now you have other authorities. We don't know entirely what that entails uh, for all heaven, but he says you will rule and reign with me, and that implies authority, correct? And so how we will reign, not to our own glory at all. That is why Christ Jesus says you need to practice something that you're going to have to get better at because you're going to be doing this in heaven, and that is if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, what do you have to do? Learn to be the servant of one another, of all. Serve the least of these, my brethren. That's when you're great in the kingdom of God. And so servanthood is that which brings God's glory. We come in with this authority not to exercise it to our own interests or to our own applause, but rather we are doing it for the glory of God eternally. And this is a repetitious uh, thing that we participate in, even as the 24 elders and as the four living creatures saying, the 24 elders respond, and over and over again that series of actions happen until Christ arrived on the scene. And so when Peter talks about the eternal glory, this is the purpose of our calling that we are called to be followers of Jesus Christ, that we might glorify him today and glorify him into eternity by always understanding that where we are, what we are, is not of our own doing. It is of him who has saved us. That even our ministries are not something that we should be applauded for, uh, congratulated for, because even that is tied and dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So he receives the glory. That is why God chooses to use you often where you are weak, so that in your weakness, he will receive glory. Where I am weak, he will be strong, and then everyone will know this guy is doing it not by his strength, but by the power of God. This has been the testimony throughout the ages. As you look back in the Old Testament, you cannot miss this statement. When these, uh, whether it be Joseph or Daniel or any of these, come before the lost that they are serving, uh, they come, well, I'm going to interpret your dream, but I want you to know it's not really me interpreting the dream. It's the God of heaven and earth, the one that you don't really worship. He's the one who has this knowledge. He is, I'm just his mouthpiece. And every one of them give glory to God in that setting for that. And remind them, the audience, don't applaud me, don't, don't elevate me. Um, it is really God that grants this and he has favored me, he has graced me with this opportunity to minister his truth to you, um, but it, all the glory should go to him. And this is, should be our condition today. It, it will be our condition for all true followers of Jesus Christ for all eternity, and we ought to be engaged. This is our purpose, is what we were called to be, our instruments and agents of glorifying God. It is your ultimate purpose. 
Are you benefactors? Yes, we, benefact, we are benefacted always by doing what we are designed to do. There is a, a sense of contentment and of accomplishment in just uh, doing what we were supposed to do, what is our purpose, and that is sufficient. We do not seek greater glory than that. We rather want to accomplish that as the saying of Christ says, that we are in profitable service, we've done what our duty is, all the glory goes to that one that we owe all service to. And so we come to verse 11 and recognize that our ministry, all these benefits that we have received after we have suffered a little while are there to, again, further bring glory to God. It is not for us. It is not to say, wow, he's, he stood fast and now God is really blessing him. Um, but, and, and he must be something phenomenal. No, God is someone phenomenal. He is someone to take note of. That he is faithful and we see this in other passages. If you go into Ephesians and, and Paul's writings, uh, and he talks about the faithfulness of God in establishing us, that we can trust him in that fashion. We've already spoken a little bit to verse 11, the concept not only does he receive glory, but also dominion. So we've been focused on the eternal glory element introduced to us in verse 10, and then repeated now in verse 11, but Peter wants to add one other element. Not only are we here to bring God glory uh, and defining our purpose as that, but we also want to recognize that we are members of a kingdom, of a dominion. And so we are in a privileged position as his family. We are brought in and, and elevated to such a degree uh, that we should bring him glory and applause for we know that we are not deserving. But we're also not only part of his intimate family, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, but there is, as we've already talked about, there is a reigning aspect of this. There is a dominion, there is a, a, an authority there that we are participating in a kingdom. And the kingdom of God uh, entails more than we imagine, I think. Uh, not only the, all the created uh, creation and the beings there, um, but into the future, God has a very uh, wide design. We'll put it like that. I think a lot wider than most Christians understand what our eternal state is really about. Is there still a dominion? Is there still a kingdom? And, and this is, again, we see throughout the New Testament writers that it is to his glory, but also recognize that we are ambassadors of his kingdom, that we ought to be behaving as citizens. Our citizenship isn't on heaven, or isn't on earth, it is in heaven. We are citizenship is there, that we are members of the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ, again, repeatedly stated this about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven. Over and over again, when we come to word talking about dominion, it's about the reign over a kingdom. And so when we go back in the Gospels and read all that Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven is like, put yourself in there because you're supposed to be an agent of the kingdom of heaven today and forever. Now, where did this dominion start? The dominion started when you humbled yourself and you said, Lord, be my Lord. 
You came to Jesus Christ and said, you died for me. I'm a sinner. I can't be approved by God. I need you as my Savior. Um, and those that want to distinguish between being, having him as your Savior and then later on having him as your Lord and uh, uh, accuse others of lordship salvation um, just don't comprehend it, I don't think. They don't realize the significance that you can't have him as your Savior if he is not the Lord. And if he is the Lord and you're not willing to recognize him as Lord, then how can you have him save you? Um, it's, uh, to me, it's very confusing how they ever got to that position. Um, but they did. We're going to see that in Second Peter. Uh, they're going to pervert the scriptures. So we come to Christ, and essentially what salvation is, is the surrender of our authority over ourselves to God's authority over us. Okay? It is the surrender. It is saying, I recognize you as my Lord, which means now you have rule and reign here. Don't call him Lord if he doesn't have rule and reign in your life. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. Right? Jesus Christ again taught that. And what was your response to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. Oh, you did a lot of things, but you didn't really do it. You used my name around, but I'm not the Lord of your life. You never surrendered your heart, your will to me. And this is the beginning of being a participant in the kingdom of God is that we subordinate our will to the will of the Father. We say, you are my Lord. I am going to be your disciple, your follower. You are the master. You are the teacher. You are the one that, that I will follow no matter where. And you have my undivided loyalty. There's a word you don't hear very much anymore. And you, don't see, and you see even less. And so this is the beginning of our salvation, is this declaration in abject humility, Lord, I need what you alone can provide, the forgiveness of sin and a place in your, in your kingdom. And that means it's your kingdom, not mine. You have to recognize that. That is an element of coming and become a follower of Jesus Christ, is that he is the one who is worthy of being followed. And followed not haphazardly, not followed by whenever I get the whim to follow him, but rather followed with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's the initiation as we go through the troubling times and the times of warfare that we talked about where we have to stand fast. Oh, we understand that it is the, and we sing these songs, it's the banner of the cross. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the, God's banner, it's not mine, it's not my will, it's not my um, stubbornness, it is the fact that I have this great and glorious king over me, of, and a part of his kingdom, I am a soldier of his kingdom. I stand here defending this kingdom as an agent of that kingdom. When you are in warfare, as an agent of the kingdom, you are a soldier, by definition. A soldier is an agent of the kingdom he is defending, fighting on behalf of. And so here I've surrendered my person to him, my heart, mind, soul, strength. Here I am engaging in the activity of defending the kingdom. And then on the other side now, I'm going to be an agent of the kingdom's activities, which we are going to refer to as being ambassadorship that I'm going to exercise my citizenship here, and that's going to be that I'm going to serve my country, my kingdom, my king, 
But it doesn't end there. For that will be extended into eternity. And as I've already mentioned, that, that Jesus Christ promises, you'll rule, reign with me in my kingdom. Remember that this is an engagement Jesus had. Because the, the apostles, they wanted a kingdom on earth. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans, give them a kingdom on earth. Remember the, the mom of the two that says, can my one son be there on your right hand, the other on the left when you enter your kingdom? What kind of request is that? It's a selfish one that doesn't really understand the nature of the kingdom of God. But they were thinking of an earthly kingdom. When Christ says, you know, this isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a kingdom that not made with, with human hands. Not of these nations, but of another time. Now, this draws us into understanding what is eternity going to be like? What is the new heaven and the new earth all about? And recognizing that um, all this, Peter himself in 2 Peter, as I say, is all going to melt with fervent heat. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That has to be in Peter's mind here as he talks about the dominion of Christ forever and ever, that we're going to be participants in that. We, we give him glory as members of his family and as recipients of his wonderful grace. But we also recognize that makes us a citizen in his kingdom. And so I have served as soldier. I am serving as ambassador. I am serving what in the future as co-regent. Wow. We're just going up the scale, aren't we? Boom, boom, boom. Citizen, soldier, ambassador, co-regent. That's the ladder of the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the career path for the true follower of Jesus Christ. Citizen, soldier, ambassador, co-regent. Well, what are we reigning over exactly? Well, the Bible describes that there's going to be a new earth, substantially different than this one, with a new Jerusalem upon that new earth, uh, and that there will be a rule and reign. That the new Jerusalem reigns over this new earth, and when I look at the promises of God to Israel and to the church and their distinguishment, that we all get to participate in that in some level. And so I anticipate that there are going to be those that are higher and those that are lesser throughout that in the ruling and reigning, uh, simply by an, a matter of their uh, willingness to serve all men. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all. If you're too important today to serve in the nursery, then you haven't learned the lesson Jesus taught. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Learn to be the servant of all. Even snotty those kids that don't ever say thank you. They always want more. Right? Learn to be the servant of all. It's not innate in you. You have to learn this. <laughs> oh, we would learn. So that I can participate now in the kingdom of God, but again, no matter how high I get in the co-regency of God, do I deserve any of it? No. Am I in charge of any of it? Not really. A true, a true one who will serve in this capacity will do only the bidding of the king and knows the king's mind and heart and how it should express itself in the dealings with one another. This is that complete and absolute dominion of Christ, not like the thousand-year reign. The thousand-year reign is a poor, um, 
introduction. It's an introduction to the dominion of Christ. And we think, oh, the thousand-year reign of Christ, that's going to be wonderful. Well, not really. You know why? Because he has to use a rod of iron. You know what that means if someone comes in with a rod of iron? That means obey or get beat. And the beat down that happens, according to Ezekiel, is that if you don't worship Christ as commanded, that your land will experience famine. So you either come or you starve. And that's really not how God wants to have dominion. And that's why I say it's, it's a poor introduction to what it is. While God does a wonderful thing in restoring the earth to its uh, more natural state instead of the unnatural state that we experience today. And that's why it's, Romans says that the creation groans waiting for its deliverance. Uh, it's groaning because it's under the weight of our sin. And so uh, it'll be restored and Christ will be doing some great things and the lion will lay down with the lamb. That all happens um, in the millennial kingdom and you have all of this going on and, and this real worship. But we recognize that at the end of that thousand years when Satan is released, uh, and that uh, men are still in their hearts not recognizing God's dominion. And there is an immediate rebellion. Well, that's not eternity. That is not what this is speaking about. It is when he has complete dominion because everyone in his kingdom, in this new heaven and new earth, are all committed and loyal to him as king. He has dominion in us and therefore in all creation. And it is that new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem that we look forward to. And yes, uh, those that want to say, well, there will be no time, there will be no, well, that's not communicating God's word anywhere. In fact, it says specifically there's going to be months, and you can't have months without weeks, you can't have weeks without days, and I'm pretty sure you can't have days without hours. And so the fruit of the trees of the life along the river of life bear fruit every month. That would be so nice, instead of once a year, huh? Monthly harvest, uh, go out there. And so we know that there's going to be that. Um, we know that there's going to be a city uh, set on an on a earth with a heavens. Uh, and the only place that there is no darkness is the city of Jerusalem where we are residing, the church. While largely Israel's promise is a, is a land and they all have the earth. And, and access in and out of the city of Jerusalem free. Free access in and out to worship. This is the dominion that Jesus describes or through John in Revelation of our eternal state. And if you thought you were going to be floating around on clouds with harps, um, you are mistaken, okay? That is not your eternity. That, frankly, is kind of boring. We have a dominion where Jesus Christ will be Lord of lords and King of kings, and yes, there will still be an identification of nations. Did you know that? I'll still know that you were an American and that guy over there was a Russian. Because it says that the leaves of the trees will be for the healing of the nations. And so I won't have any animosity towards anyone else from any other because we're all part of the dominion of Christ. He will be our Lord, our King. He will be that one that we cannot uh, cease to glorify and to serve even as co-regents. What a path. 
God offers you by his grace. Accept Christ as your Savior. Become a citizen of his kingdom. But recognize that part of citizenship sometimes is being called into warfare on behalf of the kingdom. And that's a spiritual war we're talking about. We're not talking about going and freeing the Holy Lands. Okay. Spiritual war. Defend the faith. Stand fast in his truth against those that would assault it. Stand in righteousness and truth. And then to be ambassadors of his kingdom. To represent his interest to men. And minister his kingdom and its offer of salvation to those around us. And to instruct those of his kingdom. And to benefit them by the gifts that God gives us, the tools and equipment that he provides us. And then we look forward with great expectation to his dominion and ruling and reigning with him. Again, not to our glory at all. For we recognize that we deserve none of this. And thus we come to our overview of, now I've got through the verses, I've got to go through the overview of Peter. All our relationships should be designed to that end. Your relationship between husband and wife should be designed to give glory to God, to serve his kingdom, and look forward to that place. They're not going to be your husband or your wife in that kingdom. This is your chance in that relationship within our family units, within our church, uh, and all those relationships that Peter talks about through here, with your employer, with your master, with your government, all of those relationships are opportunities for you to practice, if you will, uh, being a citizen, soldier, ambassador, and co-regent of Christ. Certainly the emphasis is on citizenship and ambassadorship and, and soldiering for Christ in our relationships because it's co-regency is really waiting for, but hopefully Christ is regent in your heart now. And it should be evident to those around you that you are not your own, you're bought with a price. And therefore you're going to glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. It belonged to, you belong to him. And if I belong to him, then my relationships also should be ruled by him. And that starts in that intimate relationship of a husband and his wife, and then into the family unit with children and parents, and then into the church in our relationship with one with another, brothers and sisters in Christ, recognizing that there are differing roles there that we honor and respect because God has called them to those responsibilities and to those accountabilities. And then with the world and those in authority over, that these relationships must relate to our need to bring glory to God and to picture for people the dominion of Christ in us. For this is where the kingdom of God begins. It's in the heart and life of his followers. It starts off very small, like a mustard seed, and grows into a great plant that even trees can nest in. We are further told not only about our relationships, but also about our suffering. It is for his glory and dominion. We have spent a lot of time on that in the last couple of weeks, and we want to reiterate that this is consistent throughout Peter's writings, that his expectation, our expectation should be suffering. To soldier for the cross, again, one of the most powerful pictures 
of loyalty and devotion to a king is that I will die for him. We have multiple days throughout our calendar in this nation to recognize men and women who are willing to do that on behalf of this nation. We need to have a, a, as a church, a recognition of the martyrdom of those who have done it as soldiers of the cross. And we know that we call it the ultimate sacrifice. Well, that is an ultimate expression of loyalty to the principles and ideals of a nation. And sometimes, when you live in a monarchy, to your loyalty to your king. And in our condition, that is what we strive for, soldiers of the cross. So we suffer and we are willing to do that on behalf of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Because of a kingdom not made with human hands. And so we endure it. And we recognize that that is a critical element and it's the, maybe even the highest calling of the citizenship of God's dominion. And then we see the teaching of who Christ is and of our salvation. And again, we submit this all to Christ. We submit its glory to him. It is not of our own private interpretation. It is not our faith that we devise and design. And that is why we put it all to the scriptures that all of our belief system must conform to the scriptures, that I don't come to it saying, here's what I believe, let me find a few proof texts, but rather, what does the scripture speak into our lives to communicate what the king wants from us? And I respond by saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. I will obey. I will not challenge it, I will not question it, I will try, not try to worm around it, I will not try to explain it away, um, Men have done that in many ways, and in many senses, we still do extensively. Not just a little bit here and there, but extensively, so that we can excuse ourselves from being obedient to the Word of God. And Peter calls us repeatedly, saying, listen, this has been revealed to you, and it is for you now to be obedient to this teaching of Christ and His Word. So we are called to to be experts in doctrine that we might give him glory and that we might serve his kingdom in truth. Not willy-nilly, not according to your beliefs, but according to absolute standard of God's truth. And this we subordinate ourselves to. And when we do that, we give him the glory and him the dominion. It is not... Uh, a theology that will ever get the name of a man attached to it. It is one that said, this is just plain biblical. We strove to do that with understanding bioethics, and I was like, this has to be biblical. It cannot be derived from me, from you, from our brothers. It has to be, does the Bible communicate this? And once it communicates it, are we willing to subordinate ourselves to it? The hard part. But the part of getting our doctrine right is not necessarily easy in these days, is it? When you have so many that will teach what people want to hear instead of what God wants to hear. What does God want to hear us teach? Because it's supposed to be for his glory in accordance with his dominion, his kingdom. Perhaps this should be our 
greatest concern. And thus, Peter culminates really his teaching here with our purpose. Not for a day, not for a week, but forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word before us. And Lord, we pray that we might serve you faithfully. And wherever we are in this spectrum of being members of your kingdom, we look forward to being co-regents with you. We anticipate it and we marvel at it, that promise that is sure. Lord, that we might serve as your citizens, as your ambassadors, as your soldiers. Faithfully, loyally, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, give us the discernment to put aside the things of this world and all the things that they allure us with to distract us from serving you well. that choke us from being productive for your kingdom. Lord, help us to ferret these out of our lives, that we might truly serve you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our body, to your glory and for your kingdom forever and ever.